Jeremiah 32, verse 26 through verse 44, which is the remainder of what we started last week. But I want to start reading in verse 24, because in verse 24, we, uh, we're hearing the prayer or a portion of the prayer of Jeremiah. And, um, and so I'm, I'm using this as context. Verse 24, Jeremiah says in his prayer, Look, the siege mounds. He, he's telling the Lord to look at the siege mounds that the Babylonians were building along the, the walls of Jerusalem. And he says, Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. The Chaldeans being, of course, the Babylonians as well. Because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Father, bless our time in your word tonight. And help us to understand... Grant us your wisdom through the Spirit. And may we be ready hearers and attentive, Lord, to what you have to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we are so far in this chapter. The people of Judah and Jerusalem are about to be taken captive and exiled as slaves in Babylon. Now just to clarify, the people of Judah, that's Israel the southern part of Israel. The northern part of Israel, when it was a divided kingdom, was the kingdom of Israel, but they had already been taken into captivity long before in Assyria. So here the people of Judah and Jerusalem are about to be taken captive and exiled as slaves in Babylon. King Zedekiah's heart is bent on departure from God, and in his anger against the prophecies of Jeremiah about the people and himself, he imprisons Jeremiah. The prophet, while in prison in the court of the king's palace for treason against the king, is instructed by the Lord to make what many consider to be a very unwise investment. He purchases a field, or he tells him to purchase a field in Anathoth, which is actually Jeremiah's hometown, purchase a field in Anathoth from his cousin Hanamel. Now, knowing with assurance that the preparation for this purchase was from the Lord, Jeremiah bought the property for 17 shekels of silver. And in this purchase, we are given two reasons. The first reason for the purchase was that it was a sign for Jeremiah's faith in God for him to buy a field. I should say it was a sign of Jeremiah's faith in God for him to buy a field that was at the time being occupied by the Babylonian armies. Now secondly, it was also a sign of Israel and Judah's coming restoration. So the buying of the field was for Jeremiah, you know, showing his faith in the Lord, to be obedient, to buy the field, even though the Babylonians were in control of it at the time. And then, of course, it was a sign, as we see in verse 15, verses 13 through 15, of uh, the nation of Israel's coming restoration. Let's look at verse 13. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord, by the way, Baruch is uh, Jeremiah's secretary, as it were. 
And uh, so he's, because he's in prison, Baruch is doing this for him. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, the deeds that had come from Hanamel uh, to Jeremiah, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. Now we didn't talk about this much, but in the, 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 the deed that was closed and the deed that was open, of course, was, you know, it kind of gives us a little bit of an indication as we always see prophecy of something that is fulfilled in, in, a, in a near fulfillment and then there is a far fulfillment. So just kind of keep that open as, as the, the second uh, deed is open. It says, put them in a vessel and that they may last many days. For, the, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So God is saying this land is going to be possessed again. Therefore, when you buy it, you're giving this as a sign that my word is faithful and true. The lessons that we learn from Jeremiah's life at this point are that he had a strong, unbreakable faith in God. Jeremiah had a strong, unbreakable faith in God. We said that he had a confident faith in God. He was very confident in what the Lord was doing. But that confident faith would lead to a confirmation of faith. And the confirmation of faith that he needed was... That as God gave him the, the, the commandment to buy the land, it is Hanamel coming and saying, I've got land that I need you to buy. He was a relative, and so we talked about the relative uh, keeping, the, keeping the land in the same family. Uh, and then he clarified his faith by God's promise to restore the land to his people. But as we see in the part of the text that we read at the very outset, as Jeremiah saw the Babylonian armies laying siege on Jerusalem on the outside and with famine, disease, and destruction on the inside that was all about him, there was also a challenge and a questioning of his faith. We talked a little bit about that last week too. How we can be very confident in what God is showing us and what God is doing, but there comes a time when the rubber meets the road and we, bet, you know, and, and, and we may have some doubts about some things that God is saying to us. So, Jeremiah is not unlike any of us. And we can say that none of us are unlike uh, Jeremiah, a prophet, who would have a questioning of his faith. And it brings us to our text for this evening, verses 26 and 27, and of course, all the way down to the end of this chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So here's that, here's that place where Jeremiah is saying, Hey, Lord, uh, you... You've been right about everything, but look at the siege mounds. Look at the famine and disease that's going on. Ugh. I'm struggling with this, Lord. <laughs> and yet you want me to buy the money or, or buy the field with the money and, 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 and so on. So now, there's the struggle. There's the challenge. Let's resolve that challenge here with Jeremiah. Because the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Now, in Jeremiah's prayer that began in verse 17, he makes that grand statement on the sovereign, uh, the sovereign grace and greatness of God, I should say. Jeremiah himself makes the statement. Ah, Lord God, Thou hast created the heavens and the earth by Thy great power and, and might, an outstretched arm. Is there anything too hard for Thee? So Jeremiah has already proclaimed that. But then as he goes along in his prayer, you see, 
He remembers and he rehashes the Lord's great work in times past, only to open his eyes to see the siege mounds of the Babylonians outside the city, the devastation of sword, famine, and pestilence within the city. And God says to Jeremiah, in effect, He says, take a good look. In other words, behold, take a good look, Jeremiah. I am the Lord. I am the God of all flesh. Didn't you just say that there's nothing too hard for me? Now what does that remind you of? Well, let me just make it real quick here and tell you that reminds me of, uh, of our prayer lives many times. Oh God, you're so great. God, you're so good. God, you're so wonderful. God, you're so mighty. You can, you can solve every problem and everything. And I mean, you're just great and great. And, and you've done this and this and this. But here I am, Lord. And I see all these troubles around me and I just don't know what to do. We start all those prayers that way, don't we? Oh God, you're so good. God, you're so great. But I've got this big problem. And the Lord says, take a good look, Jeremiah. I'm the Lord. I am the God of all flesh. Didn't you just tell me? Didn't you, didn't you just proclaim that nothing's too hard for me. What we must own in our hearts, folks, as believers in God and in Christ, what we must own in our hearts about God is that He is the moral governor over all of His creation who deals with all according to their works. Now, this is something that Jeremiah also said. And because of this, nothing is too small for His notice or too great for His capacity. If you want to write that down, I'll say it again about four times. Because I think it's a, tr- it's a tremendous statement to think about. That because God is the God of all, and the Lord over all, and the God who created all things, nothing is too small for His notice. And nothing is too great for His capacity. In other words, there's no problem that He can't deal with. No matter how big we can make it, God can deal with it. But on the other hand, conversely speaking, sometimes we say, well, this problem is too small for God. No, God takes notice of everything. Nothing is too small or too great for God to deal with. But He's God, He's so busy with everything in the world. Yeah, right. You're, you're, you're trying to make him like one of us. You can't do that. God's too great. God's too big. Our God is not small. He's a great God. Consider Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Listen, he sees it all. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If we're going to give account, make sure you know that he sees everything you do. 
And God doesn't act frantic about it. Do you remember the Wizard of Oz? I'm not talking about the Wiz, I'm talking about the Wizard of Oz. The old one, you know. Whoever. Anyway, I forgot, the, I forgot the actress. Anyway, Judy Garland, yeah, that one. And you know, when, when the wizard is discovered, he's behind a curtain, you know. But he's, he's got all this, this high-tech stuff for that time, 1938 or 9. All this high-tech stuff, and oh, I'm the great and powerful Oz, you know, blah, 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 and this and that. And the little dog, uh, Toto, goes and pulls the curtain back, and there's this guy frantically doing all kinds of stuff. And he sees that they see him, and he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, you know. And we think that that's God, you know. God doesn't want to see, he doesn't want anybody to see how frantic he is trying to keep the world in order, you know, while everything's going. Oh, God knows exactly what's going on. God has everything under control. We might not see it that way, but God does. Because he's seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He's seen it all already. He actually knows how it's all going to end. As a matter of fact, we should know how it's all going to end too because we have beginning to end here. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says, and this was spoken to the king, king Azza, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose, hearts, whose heart is loyal to him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So, his eyes run to and fro in a sense he sees everything. And he will be strong on behalf of those who are loyal. So he knows who's with him and who's not. We could put up a mask or we could put up a facade and make it seem like we're loyal to him. And yet he knows. The facades don't work with God. You can't hide your heart from God is, 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 the, is the idea here. So the Lord wanted Jeremiah to get the proper perspective amid all of the confusion that was going on around him there in Jerusalem. And then we might have to ask the question, had the, had the prophet actually forgotten the promise that made, uh, made by the Lord to him and the people? God had made a promise in, Jer in, in Jeremiah 29. And if you go back to Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14, there in, in chapter uh, 29, verse 10, it says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you. I want you to notice that God doesn't say, I might visit you. Or depending on how you act or how you live, I, I could visit you, I could not visit you. I mean, you know, it it's all depends on what you do. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I will visit you and perform my good work towards you, my good word towards you, and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Would you please keep that thought of, that, that God does not uh, think thoughts of evil toward us? Please keep that in your mind because we're going to touch on that later. Verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I, I really wanted to use this passage last week because we were dealing with that very issue of, of Jeremiah rehashing everything that God had done. Well, here was the great promise. 
And he says, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I'll bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. I don't find anywhere in this whole passage that I've just read to you, verses 10 through 14, that seems to be uh, conditional. It's all unconditional when he says, I will. I will do this. And every time God says, I will, guess what? He does it. And so after the Lord gives Jeremiah the proper perspective of things, and we've seen that God has done this many times in the last 32 chapters, that nothing is too hard for God. That's the perspective that we as Christians need to have right now, today. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. After he has given him this perspective, he speaks of the judgment that is coming upon them for their idolatry, for turning away from the Lord, and that is all of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Jeremiah 32, verses 28 through 34. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it. With the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me their back. Now, folks, sometimes we turn our backs on people. Sometimes we get disgusted with someone for whatever reason, more, more than likely not a good reason. But we get disgusted with somebody and we turn our backs on them. What is that saying to them? I don't want to see you and I don't want to be a part of you. I don't want you to have any part in my life. I don't want you before me. I don't want you to, uh, to even think that I, I'm looking your way. Man does that to each other. Families do that amongst themselves. And yet God takes notice of this and He says, and they have turned to me the back. What does it say? not the face though I taught them rising up early and teaching them yet they've not listened to receive instruction but they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it so here was God's declaration that he would demonstrate his power by effecting 
and executing judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, having appointed Babylon to be his agent of judgment, Babylon being a pagan nation and kingdom, God says, I'm the God of all flesh. I'll use whoever I want to bring judgment to you who should have known better because I made you my people. I called you by my name, but you turned your back on me. So judgment will come. And God was personally handing the city of Jerusalem over to the Babylonians because of the sins of the people. And once the Babylonians captured the city, they would burn it to the ground. And the Lord gave the reasons for this. In verse 29, he says that the people had become idolaters. They worshiped false gods, even on their rooftops. You know, you would think that they would want to worship gods, and in many cases... They did early on. They would worship false gods. They would get from the other nations around them. But they always did it in secret. Now they're doing it on their rooftops. What is that saying? We don't care about God anymore. We don't even care if He watches us or not. So, the reason for the way that Babylon came and, and, and judged Jerusalem and, and Judah, they become idolaters. They worship false gods. And they did it out in the open. Secondly, in verse 30, the people were stubborn, they were stiff-necked, and they continually committed evil. Well, throughout their history, they had done nothing but evil in the sight of the Lord. Time and again, after Judah, uh, I should say, after Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, one generation lives for God. When, Ju when, when Joshua uh, dies, and, and uh, uh, now they... they enter into now that they enter into uh, a new generation in the book of Judges we're told that that new generation had no knowledge whatsoever of the things of God no knowledge whatsoever and so they began this this cycle of sin and, and, and uh, you know that would eventually lead them to uh, to repent of their sins and you know God would have a, a judge that would come and, and, and lead them out of the, the uh, slavery that they were placed in because of their sin so they went from sin into slavery and then they cried out supplication unto the Lord and God saved them so those are the four S's of the cycle of the book of Judges but then even after the judges, they wanted a king. You know, They wanted a king like all the other nations. God says, well, I'm your king. And all we want a king we can see and touch and feel and follow. So God gave them a king. Gave them Saul. So you see, you see the progression. You know, It isn't until David has placed as king of Israel that there's, there's a time of, of, of restoration. There's a time of, of, of true godly spiritual leadership. But then after David and then Solomon, of course... You know, David fell in sin, and then Solomon came along. And, and so, after Solomon's sin, you know, Rehoboam, his son, uh, followed after his own ways. Then the division of the kingdom. So that's where we are here. That's the history. Their history has always been touched with the evil in the sight of the Lord. So their history was not one of righteousness, but of wicked and unjust behavior. That's verse 30 of what we just read. 
And then verse 31 tells us that they continue to sin and arouse God's anger. So from the founding of Jerusalem to that day, the citizens had done nothing but stir up God's anger by rejecting Him and His commandments. And then in verse 32, the people provoked God by all the evil that they had committed. So what does it mean to provoke God? Now we're told in the, in the New Testament, and parents are told, you know, do not provoke your children to wrath. To provoke is, you know, to keep pounding, picking, doing things, you know, to, to, to bring some anger or some uh, action against you. They provoke God by all the evil they committed. And everyone was guilty, uh, including the kings, the officials, the priests, the prophets, the men, and everybody else. Verse 33, the people rejected the Lord instead of turning their faces to Him in worship and prayer, and they turned their backs on Him, they denied Him, and they followed false gods. Verse 34, the people even defiled the temple itself. So, so it went from the openness of, of, of uh, uh, worshiping false gods in, in their rooftops to taking them even into the temple itself. How degrading is that? The house that bears God's very name. How many places today that are called churches are desecrating those places that were at one time houses of worship of God and of Christ? And today they're saying, well, you know, we, we, we're not going to study the Bible anymore. The Bible is just, you know, kind of just a lot of, a lot of words and doctrine. You know, we need, to, we need to have a conversation with each other. We need to sit down and talk and, and you know, kind of look into other beliefs because sometimes we can learn a little bit from them too and, and whatnot. But all along God's Word says, you know, I'm God. I, I never change. My Word never changes. And not only had the temple been polluted with detestable and repulsive idols, but the, the valley of Ben-Hinnom, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, had become a slaughterhouse where the people would sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Look at verse 35. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. This isn't cool. Yeah, there are groups of people that, that go out and, 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 and do their, their best to affect young people in schools. You know, the devil worship is cool, that sacrificial type of things is cool, you know, that, you know, the whole goth thing or whatever, you know, and evil and paint your face so you can look dead kind of thing, all that's cool. No, that's not cool. It's an abomination before God. God is a God of life, not of death. They built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. Folks, that doesn't mean, you know, that it was kind of like a parade. It was sacrifice of their own children. And then God has to say, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In effect, he's saying, they did it on their own. And it needs to be noted that the children of Israel weren't trying to be progressive or creative in their choices to offer their children in the fires of Molech. Well, it's a new thing. There are all kinds of new things going on. Does it make it right because it's a new thing? No, we better check everything with God's Word 
Because sacrificing children, the last time I heard, God was, uh, you know, considered an abomination. So they're not being pre, uh, progressive, creative in their choices to offer their children in the fire of Molech. It had already been written in the law given to Moses hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. Leviticus 18, verse 21. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now you have to understand that Molech was actually an Ammonite god. The Ammonites, of course, lived many, many years before this. So they were already worshipping Molech early on when the children of Israel came into the Promised Land. And even before. Because it is mentioned in the book of Leviticus as it's part of the law. And then if you go to uh, Leviticus 20, and you don't have to do that now, but there's an even stronger condemnation in the first five verses against Molech worship. So if you want to read that, just mark it Leviticus 20 and go read that tonight. But what this brings up to us is that sin is always a progression downward. Let me say that again. Sin is always a progression downward. Not upward, downward. Away from God. And they had gotten so bad that they were sacrificing their children to the god Molech, the god of pleasure. Now, this is some of what Molech was all about. He was the god of pleasure, the god of success, and the god of prosperity. Now these things uh, that were happening when children were being sacrificed to Molech. Where did these children come from, by the way? Well, follow along here for just a moment. These children were the result of the sexual freedom that they had because they were now worshipping a false god. They were worshipping Baal and they were offering the children to Molech, which is what the Ammonites had done before, and it carried on through these other uh, cultures and societies. You see that the God that they worshipped, and the way they worshipped these gods, the gods that they worshipped and the way they worshipped these gods would, would, would actually degenerate into sexual orgies. That's, that's what it always led to. Go to the New Testament and read the list that uh, the Apostle Paul gives when he gives lists of sins that are abominable to God. You'll always see that idolatry and, and any sexual sin are very closely related. Because by and large, if there was idolatry taking place, it would always lead or had to do with some kind of sexual perversion. And so the product of this kind of sex that they were having in the free-wheeling uh, 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 idolatry worship was children. So the problem was all the unwanted children. And what could they do with them? Unwanted children, even in those days, they had unwanted children. Today, we're a little bit more sophisticated. We call it abortion. 
What's different? Just the technology, that's all. Because you see, their solution back then was to burn them in the fire to the god Moloch. And not only did they get rid of all those unwanted children, but they were also insured of, when they did, prosperity, success, or so they thought. So in their minds it was a double blessing. Get rid of unwanted children and then we have the freedom to go on and succeed and be more prosperous in the things that we're doing. But God did not see it that way and he calls it an abomination. And God feels the same way about abortion today. It is still murder. But most of us, most people, not us, but most people that are in the world that accept abortion, they see it still as a double blessing. Why? Because it gets rid of unwanted children and it gives them the freedom for success. We have come a long way, right? Remember back in the 60s and 70s, it came up with some campaign for Virginia Slims. We've come a long way, baby. Have we? Not at all. Not at all. It is still an abomination to the Lord. And God judged the southern kingdom of Judah for it. And I wonder how long his patience and long-suffering will continue for this nation. Because of our abortion laws or the way that laws are protecting abortion today. But while God said that he would demonstrate his power by effecting judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, he would also declare to demonstrate his power by setting his people free from that captivity and returning them to the promised land. So let's look at verses 36 to 41. Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. In other words, I'll bring them back to Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way. Now please note verses 39 and 40. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to uh, to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. You know, when God says, I'm going to do something with all my heart and all my soul, you can be assured of it. You can be assured of that. You remember, guys, sometimes, you, you know, back when you were like courting or dating, as it were. Oh, with all my heart and all my soul, I'll do this and I'll do that for you right we're all talk no action but when God says it you see it's going to happen why? because God's always faithful to do what he says he's going to do that's why I say this is not a conditional thing he says I'm going to bring my people back into this land by the way there is a far fulfillment That has yet to happen. 
But it's already started to happen. The people have already come back into the land. God is working His way to bless the people of Israel once again. We'll talk about that more as we go along. So it's a wonderful thing to know that God isn't finished with His people. He wasn't finished with them and He isn't finished with us either. Don't think that just because you said a prayer and you came to the Lord, and you know, however it was, but don't think that God's finished with you. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul understood this well when he told the church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, God's still working with us. We're still works in progress. Consider yourself a WIP. Work in progress. <laughs> Good morning, class. <laughs> There's still a work in progress. All of us. God's still working. His work in us. Well, the Lord made it clear to Jeremiah that the, the situation wasn't lost. The present judgment would not be God's final word. And while there, were, there would be many Jewish people who would die from sword, yes, they would die from the famine and the plague, yes, and the city fallen into the hands of the, of the Babylonians, there would still be a very bright future for Israel. That's why we talk about Israel so much. Because God has already begun that work. I wish people would open their eyes just to see what's happening. Just to see how many uh, prophecies have been fulfilled already, and yet others are still yet to come, and we know they're going to happen because God said they would. And the ones that Jesus promised to happen, they have happened and are happening, and will happen when He comes again. So we need to realize that there is a future for the people of Israel. Didn't the Lord say that His thoughts were not were of good and not of evil, to give them a future and a hope. This is the future and the hope. And so the Lord would gather the Israelites from all the nations and bring them back to the promised land. That's verse 37. He would restore the nation and the people would live in, in peace and security. And then secondly, the Lord would establish a personal relationship with His people and give them unity of heart and behavior. That's verses 38 and 39. They shall be my people, I will be their God, you see. He would place the fear of God in their hearts, a fear that would stir them to live righteously and resist evil. And folks, by the way, if it was given to Israel, it's given to us too. We need, as believers in Jesus Christ, to have the fear of the Lord. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Thirdly, the Lord would make an everlasting covenant with His people. How long is everlasting? Forever. Forever. The Lord would make an everlasting covenant with His people. He would always bless them and motivate them up to, uh, to fear Him so that they would never turn away from Him. God instills the fear of the Lord in us. You know that we have faith only because God gives us faith? We, all, we repent only because God gives us the gift of repentance so that we might repent. This is how much God loves us. And He gives us the fear of the Lord. He gives us the understanding of what it means to fear God. In considering the fear of the Lord, <clears throat> at this juncture, a question burns in my heart. 
do we in the church of Jesus Christ today fully understand the fear of the Lord? Do we understand the fear of the Lord? We, you know, what, what, if I just ask you, what is fear? Well, it, it, it's uh, you know that that uh, response that I have to something that scares me or something that uh, causes me to, uh, you know, to tremble or consider, you know, some danger or harm to me. We know that some fear is good. Every one of us experiences the fact that if we go to a street corner and we want to cross the street, we don't cross the street without looking both ways. Why? Because we don't want to, to be a, a hood ornament for a greyhound bus. So we look both ways. So there is a, a, there's a good fear at all. But what does the fear of the Lord mean? Because this is something totally uh, misunderstood in the church even. Because in one form or another... Uh, and there are certainly, uh, uh, we're given a, a, a number of verses that contain the phrase of fear of the Lord in, in one form or another. Most of those references are well marked, they're well defined. Let me read a few of them to you. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 says, And now Israel, what does the Lord uh, your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, if you look at verse 10, uh, 12 of Deuteronomy 10, what we have up here, Look carefully at all the, un, the all-encompassing definition of the fear of the Lord. God has required us to fear Him, to walk in His ways. So if we fear the Lord, we're going to walk in His ways. If we fear the Lord, we're going to love Him. If we fear the Lord, we're going to serve Him. And we're not just going to serve Him, we're going to serve Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul, with everything that's within us. So the fear of the Lord has to do with worship. Because what is worship? But that we walk in God's ways, that we, live, that we love Him, that we live for Him, and that we serve Him. That's the fear of the Lord. Now in Joshua 24 verse 14, as Joshua is now uh, getting ready to leave the scene, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. So now the, the, the definition grows deeper. We are to serve Him with sincerity. Not faking it all, but doing it in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, and in Egypt serve the Lord. Get rid of those idols. Don't be serving everything else. Serve God and God alone. In Job 28, verse 28, it says to, to man, He said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So now there's an even greater understanding of what it means to fear the Lord in that we fear the Lord to receive wisdom from God. And in that wisdom we're going to depart from evil. And when we do that, that's understanding. We understand then that there is good and there is evil. There is righteousness and there is wickedness. And we are to be on the side of righteousness because we are on the side of truth. God's truth. Anything else is wickedness. And lies and deception. God is all about truth. The enemy is about what? Deception. Psalm 111 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. So we can conclude then that the children of Israel faltered. And they failed in their sins. Because they had lost the fear of the Lord in their hearts toward evil. They weren't fearing God anymore. But they were doing evil pretty well. Now follow along with me. Psalm 97 verse 10. We're almost done here. Almost. 
Not quite. Psalm 97, verse 10. Notice what it says. You who love the Lord. Is this speaking to anybody here tonight? I hope so. You who love the Lord hate evil. There's a problem in the church. We want to say we love the Lord, but we like a little wickedness from time to time. We're like, you know, a little evil from here and there. You know, what's, what's it going to hurt us? You who love the Lord, hate evil. Hate it. He preserves, notice, He preserves the souls of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. He delivered us out of the hand of the wicked one who kept us blind and deceived that there was a God who loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son that once we believed in Him, we wouldn't perish any longer, but we'd have everlasting life because of Jesus Christ. And He kept us in that wickedness blind to that truth. Now go back to Psalm 34 for just a moment. Because we're not done with the fear of the Lord. I mentioned Psalm 97 verse 10 because that phrase, You who love the Lord hate evil. Well look at verse 11 of Psalm 34. Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So it's something that we can learn. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Stop there. Can you answer that question for yourself? Who's the man or woman who desires life? Just me. I desire life. Do you love many days? That you may see good? Oh, come on, you know, there's three of us are doing this. Five, seven, gee, many. So what's the answer to the question in verse 13? Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now notice verse 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. By the way, if you read the word evil from the L backwards... It means, it, it says live. But if you live evil, you're dead. If, if, if you appreciate and love e- uh, evil, you're, you're, you're not living the life that God wants you to have. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Wickedness and evil are not confined to what we do because of the tongue. The tongue, it says in that, in that last phrase in verse 15, or... Uh, Uh, Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil. So wickedness and evil are not confined to what we do, but also what we say and what we think. But then again, I want you to consider this. Proverbs 8, verse 13. Proverbs 8, verse 13. I don't see see enough of you turning over to these things in your Bibles. Because you ought to be marking them. Every Every last scripture I've been giving you here tonight are things you need to mark. And if they're already marked, mark them again. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Hate it. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. 
I've got a question for you. Shouldn't we hate what God hates? Folks, shouldn't we hate what God hates? Now, we're not to confine this teaching and doctrine to the Old Testament. Because I've given you a lot of verses of Scripture from the Old Testament. Well, you know, when you put the Old Testament and New Testament together, you have one Bible. So this is one Bible teaching us about one God who never changes. He says, I never change. And one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never changes. If God hated evil in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I can assure you, God hates evil today. And whatever God hates, we should hate. Romans 12, verse 9. We're really almost done now. No, not really. Almost, yeah, you know, almost. Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Notice this. Abhor what is evil. What does it mean to abhor? It means to utterly detest what is evil. Unfortunately, a lot of evil is packaged in a really modern, sophisticated way today. So it looks pretty good. It looks like it can't be that bad. It can't be that wrong. I'm not here to make a list of it. By the way, the next part says cling to what is good. That we should do more than any, anything. Cling to what is good. If we cling to what is good, we don't have to worry about having to, you know, we're, we're going to abhor evil, but if we cling to what is good, we're not going to have so much of the temptations upon us. Romans 12, verse 17, same chapter. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. By the way, Paul is speaking to the church, isn't he? What does it imply? That sometimes Christians will repay evil for evil. Amen? I'm not saying amen because I want you to do this. Uh, what I want you to do is not do this. Don't repay evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Jump down to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The point of all of this is that we in the church of Jesus Christ must remember that we are not to take God's word for granted. We are not to take God's word for granted. Sin is still sin. And God hates sin. Now, God loves the sinner. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How many times have we heard this verse of Scripture, John 3.16 tonight? About to hear it as often as we can. God loved the world so much. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The price that was paid for our sins. Sin is still sin though. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how the world, the flesh or the devil packages sin today. It's still sin. And you can't cover it up. We're told sin will find you out. 1 John 1, 5-10. By the way, we're all sinners, aren't we? Not that we sin actively, but we were sinners that were saved by the grace of God. 
and by the blood of Jesus Christ. There are times when we make, we make mistakes. Sometimes we do things and, and we know it because we're convicted by the Holy Spirit of that sin. So we're still sinners. That's why Philippians 1.6 that Paul is confident of the thing that, you know, that uh, he who began this good work in us is able to complete it until the day of Christ. Why? Because he's still working on us. We're still WIPs. Works in progress. 1 John 1, verses 5-10, through 10, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So even saying, well, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm in the light, but if we're practicing in the darkness, sin, guess what? You're not in the truth. You're not in the truth. I'm not telling you that. John is. Into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, but if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise the Lord. Because it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I I don't know how much clearer we need it to be. There's still sin that we have to deal with. But we can come and confess it to the Lord and the Lord will forgive us and get us, you know, get us back in the right track and let's stay on that track. 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. Jump down to chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Folks, we either love God or we love the world. We either love God or we love the world. The, the Israelites, the children of Israel, were told, fear the Lord, serve Him, walk in His ways, love Him. And if you do that, don't love the world because the world will take you in and they'll suck you, it'll suck you in and it'll spit you out. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Folks, How do you interpret that? But what it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not there in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another. The two tablets of the commandments fulfilled completely and totally by Jesus Christ. To know Christ and to believe that he can set us free. Let's close, our, let's close out our text here in Jeremiah. Verses 42 through 44. You see now how it is to fall away from the fear of the Lord And then all of a sudden to be worshiping idols. We have to be careful in this life. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses. In the land of Benjamin. In other words, just as Jeremiah bought the land, even though the, 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 the Babylonians were on it, one day 
men will buy land. In the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. You go to Israel one time and you will see that fulfilled. They have bought the land. They're still buying land. Land is still being sold. They have come back to the land. God tried to warn His people by sending prophets. He warned them to repent and to return to Him, but they refused. So God brought this judgment upon them by the hands of the Babylonians, taking them into captivity for 70 years. And that may seem harsh, but God had to do it. Because He wanted to bring about good, but to allow His people to continue down that path would have only brought about destruction. I've said this before, but why were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden? One of the things that is said in the book of Genesis uh, is that since they had already eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, lest they go and eat of the tree of life, we have to get them out of the garden. Why? Because had they eaten then secondly of the tree of life, after they had eaten of the tree that God told them not to eat of, then they would have lived forever. The tree of life... They would have lived forever in their disobedience and in their sin. They would have never had the opportunity for salvation. Folks, sin is a serious thing. But salvation is a more serious thing. And it's a greater thing if we will heed what God tells us. So it would have just shown that God really didn't love them if he just let them go off and, and, and do what they want to do. He does love them, you see. And this is why he couldn't let them move into that destructive, destructive direction. So God may deal harshly with us, but that is only to awaken us, to get us back on track. But may you never forget that God is patient and he's long-suffering toward us. And Psalm 30, verse 5, and I want to close with this verse. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Shall we pray?